From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a live radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. That isn't 100% true because I am back at my home studio, but last week we actually got together in person for a live event as part of one of Advisory Board's big executive summits. We did a completely live recording. We had a couple of incredible external guests, some voices from Advisory Board, and we put on a fantastic show. That does mean that this episode is longer than usual. It's almost an hour, but I promise it is worth it to get through it all. We're talking about next generation clinical products and why they will be disruptive for the industry. In fact, why they will be particularly disruptive in 2023. Together with my guests, we talk about what that means for providers. We talk about what that means for purchasers and how the industry can work together to be prepared for these new products. Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. I am talking about games. I am talking about polls. It is really worth your time. I hope you enjoy this live radio advisory episode. All right. We are here to talk about next generation diagnostics and therapeutics. And this isn't your typical podcast episode. This also isn't your typical conference session. We have, of course, brought the research and the materials to advance our discussion. But we also want to have a little bit of fun. And joining me on that fun are our expert panelists. I've got Fanta Sharif. She is advisory board's own researcher. She's literally spent the last year trying to understand what it means to adapt to next-generation therapeutics and diagnostics. We also have Bill Dreitlein. He's an executive pharmacist, and he works for OptumRx as the senior director of pipeline and drug surveillance. And then we have Dr. Yuri Marishish. I, did I butcher that? Pretty close. I'm just going to call you Dr. Yuri. Dr. Yuri. Uh, he's the chief medical officer and head of development at Pair Therapeutics. If you don't know what Pair is, they are a company that is trying to redefine medicine by including prescription digital therapeutics. Did you ever think that was possible? Now, our guests are here, again, to talk about this future state of upcoming products. And I'm calling them next-generation products. And that should automatically be giving you some Star Trek vibes, right? Next generation. It should be making you think about things that might be science fiction. Because the truth is, there are a lot of very cool new products, new devices that are going to be hitting the market that just seem like they're out of a science fiction novel. They don't seem real. Or maybe even if they seem like they're in the realm of possibility, it's easy to think, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years into the future are when we're actually going to have to deal with this in the healthcare ecosystem. But the truth is, and this is the problem, we are on the cusp of a lot of very cool products about to hit our market. I'm talking about things like deep brain stimulation. I am talking about biomarker testing. I am talking about ultra-high-cost drugs, digital therapeutics, lots that is out there. What I'm worried about is a world where we have no way to deliver or finance those products. 
Think about what that would mean for patients. That there is a life-changing product that is out there, that is available, but it's not actually able to get into the hands of the patients that need it the most. That's what we're going to talk about avoiding today. I want us to go from a world where we're maybe avoiding the inevitable to where we're actually embracing next-generation products. Now, we're going to keep talking about these products, and we're going to keep having some fun. So we have a little bit of a game to kick us off with. The game is fact or fiction. Each of our guests has come with a next-generation product. They are going to share it with all of you. It is your job to determine which is science fiction. You ready? All right. Fanta, you want to kick us off? Sure. Thank you. So first we have the smart toilet, which is your number one expert on going number two. (laughs) (laughs) So this product embeds AI into toilets and really helps gastroenterologists really inform treatment for IBD and IBS. So if you're not into home improvement, you can also find this just at your local gastroenterologist's office. Next, we have the next big thing for pharma, or maybe, maybe it's the next big thing for, for devices. I think it's just the next big thing, personally. You think it's just the next big thing. <laughs> Either way, it's another story about poop. Well, you know, this is a companion to the, the toilet, and this is a vibrating pill. The big problem is constipation. Some people get it, don't know why. Sometimes it's a side effect of a drug. Anybody, any nurses in the audience? You probably have dealt with that with people who have, you know, not personally, sorry. Uh, but, but, and only you have, but, um, but, you know, people with opioid-induced constipation, right? It happens to the best of us. But what this product is, it's a capsule that vibrates. And so you take it, and then it kind of travels down. And it comes with an app, by the way, so you can kind of, watch where it goes. Of course it does. Because I guess at some point you have to figure it comes out the other side, and you might want to know that. And uh, what it does is it vibrates, and then it kind of stirs things up and, and helps things move. So hence the, you know, the interaction with the smart toilet. <laughs> it's a All whole right. system. It's a whole ecosystem, end to end. All an ecosystem. All right, Yuri, round us out with the thing that everyone is afraid will take over the world, or at least that physicians are afraid are going to take their jobs. Tell us about robots. Yeah, I feel like I need to elevate this conversation as well. So, uh, (laughs) phage robots. So, robots are replacing everything. And so, phage robots are actually molecular machinery that can attack and inject their own molecular machinery into bacteria without having the same consequences of resistance to antibiotics and would usher in a new era antimicrobials. Sounds pretty cool. All right, audience, it's your turn to get involved. We've got three options for you, the smart toilet, the vibrating pill, or phage robots. Again, you get to decide which one of these is actually fake. Go ahead and clap for me if you think that the smart toilet is fake. How about the vibrating pill? Oh! Oh, I sold that pretty good. Fade robots. It's too futuristic to be fake. Do you want to tell them the truth? They're all real. They are all real. real. That's right. They seem like they're out of science fiction, but these are all real products that are either available today. Like, you can get the smart toilet now if you want to. Or they're in FDA approval. They're in the kind of final stages of development, about to be ready for our own industry to actually use. Now, we're having some fun talking about these products, but the the truth is there's a huge, huge range of what we could be talking about when we say next-generation therapeutics and diagnostics. Fanta, 
What do we actually mean when we're talking about this? Yeah, so through my research stream, we've kind of identified seven different buckets of what this actually means. So we've broken it down into at-home diagnostics, biomarker testing, deep brain stimulation, psychedelic assisted therapy, pharmacogenomics, and ultra-high cost drugs. So typically when we're looking at these products, they really just require a higher level of just stakeholder interaction and collaboration. They also typically are higher cost. They are indicated to treat really rare and severe disease. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they may be indicated for individual treatment decisions, so maybe deferring depending on which individual you're actually treating. And then lastly, they really, really, really are changing the routes of administration. So whether that's through like infusions, deep brain stimulation, as we said before, so like helmet caps, brain surgery, et cetera. So really just changing the way we're thinking about like care delivery, how we generate evidence and collect evidence and how we use evidence, looking at differences in payment models, and then lastly, really challenging how we regulate these things because there's so much flexibility. But all these things to me, they sound great, right? As, a, as somebody who's a patient, right? We're all also patients. These sound like something that, you know, I would welcome when I think about my own, you know, future of healthcare treatment. My question for, for you, Bill, and for you, Yuri, is why is this a problem? Why is this going to be disruptive for the industry if we're not prepared for these next generation products? Why is it a problem? Well, I, I guess in some ways it is, in some ways it's not. I mean, in some ways, it, it helps us do our jobs better. But how it can be a problem is if we're not aware of it. Yeah. You know, I think those are the things that are truly disruptive when, you know, something new and revolutionary comes and we just get blindsided by it. That's the thing that can really upset your business and, and even put you out of business. You know, thinking back to the hep C drugs, innovative, disruptive technology that nobody saw coming. And the, the byproduct of that was that there were some plans that, that almost went out of business because they weren't prepared right. for the volume, they weren't prepared for the costs, they weren't prepared for how do, we, how do you deal with a one-time course of treatment that could actually cure an, an infectious disease, something we have real, real problems with. But cost a ton of money. Yeah, but cost a ton of money. So the, the, there was no question about the value. Right. right, like it was clearly valuable to wipe out hepatitis C. Like we want to do that, but at the cost, then we it got to the point where we have to figure out well, who do we prioritize? Yeah, or value to whom? Valuable to the patient, but yeah, yeah. Yuri, what's your take? Why, why will this be disruptive for the industry? I think also just looking historically, I mean, this is to me one of the great paradoxes of healthcare. Right, is we have basically a whole sector that has been driven by innovation buy new things. But the challenge is we are now starting to, I think, really confront what is astronomical slash exponential growth in terms of cost. And so to your point, Bill, then there's these questions of value. I think on the provider side, even though historically we've changed a lot and adopted a lot of new things, it's also hard for each one of us as an individual or for health systems or clinics to say yes to now one more thing. Right? There's too many things for any individual clinician, let alone an organization, to do. Right. And so now we're saying, oh, and guess what? We're going to add one more thing. Yes. The second thing, on the, I think, on the payer side is trying to really understand these questions of value and balance the concern about overutilization mm -hmm. with also the fear of not adopting things soon enough. 
And that's also the paradoxical situation that each payer finds themselves. And so that's also why you see a lot of both fear of missing out, but fear of being first at the same time. And everyone's looking around the room to see who's going to make the first move. Why should we be focusing on this now, right? We've all been at advisory boards summit event, hearing about all of the challenges and all of the opportunities in healthcare. Why is it that in 2023, right, very soon we need to be prepared for a world where we're going to have more of these products? Why now? It's not theoretical. Like the, all these things, the list that you gave at the beginning, deep brain stimulation, gene therapy, pharmacogenomics. Yep. It's here. It's not so, and that's one of the one of the differences between the conversation today and the conversation we might have had ten years ago. It's here. There are already four gene therapies on the market. Next year, there's going to be eight more. Wow! You know, we already have CAR T therapy. We got like eight of them. You know, and then they're bleeding into other disease states, and that understanding is kind of now carrying over into other areas. So it's, it's, it's important to plan for it because it's here. It's just going to come in greater quantities in 2023. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. Like, it's almost inherently flawed that we talk about these things as the next generation because they're already here. Mm. So they're not a problem of the future. They're actually things that we should be preparing for now. It's not enough to just be aware of them, but we actually need to take the steps to make strategic implementation. And, and maybe I'll just add, I think the, the pace of what is here now is moving faster, right? Mm, We definitely saw that with COVID, which is organizations who are like, yeah, we do a little bit of telemedicine, and all of a sudden that became mainstream. But now we're grappling with, is that still the best way to do it? Is the right Mm -hmm. thing? In what what case? So in many situations, we're having organizations who are already above capacity now trying to figure out how do they become continuous learning organizations and continuous adopting and continuously evaluating what works and what doesn't. So it means we also then have to figure out how do we analyze and run killer experiments to say yes or no to things at scale before that we never were able to do. Right. And on the note of like COVID-19, it's also just exacerbated like the mental health burden Behavioral disorders are on the rise. Lifestyle diseases are on the rise. So a lot of these patients who are facing very severe diseases need alternative treatment options. So the market is booming because of that. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. As we emerge from the global pandemic, healthcare is restructuring. Some organizations are grappling with threats to their viability. Others are finding opportunity in chaos. And market forces are building momentum to fundamentally change the industry as we know it. But with so much in flux, what really matters? What decisions should you be making? And what do you need to know to make them? Explore the state of the healthcare industry and its outlook for next year by visiting advisory.com forward slash healthcare 2023 or by following the link in our show notes.
So let's talk about how we actually adapt, right? If this is what is coming or what is here now, to your point, let's talk about how we actually adapt. And I no longer want to use this royal we anymore because I actually think it's really important to be thinking about different stakeholders and the realities that every stakeholder has. And that's also important for our audience, right? If I, if I look out at all of you, you're joining us from health plans, from health systems, from hospitals. You, we've got device manufacturers that are here. We have pharmaceutical companies. We have the whole gamut that's here with us today and who's listening to our podcast. We're going to break this into two sections. We're going to talk about purchasers. And by that, I mean health plans, employers, even consumers themselves. And then we're going to talk about providers. But here's the thing. There is way too much that we could talk about, right? far too much to fill in a single podcast episode or a single event. So we want you to actually guide us. I want everybody to pull out their phones. We're going to do a little bit of a poll. There are no right or wrong answers here. We've got three options when it comes to purchasers. The first is the value framework. Right? How do we actually balance having enough evidence, having the right size of the population, having the right time to impact to actually take on the cost here? Inappropriate utilization, we already brought up. We know that not everyone can or should use these products. So how do we avoid overutilization without overburdening the system? And the last one is all about risk. How do purchasers guard against catastrophic costs and allocate the financial burden appropriately so that they can take on the right amount of risk for these novel products? Let's go ahead and go to the poll results. Pretty even split. So purchasers have a lot of challenges is what I'm, what I'm seeing. Value framework, inappropriate utilization, risk mitigation. Are you surprised by what, what folks said? Oh, more for risk. Changing. Panelists, are you surprised by this? No. Why are you not surprised? Because when we think about next generation things, they always cost more. Yeah. Right? And there's so many unknowns about them. So, of course, I can understand how people are worried about risk and my risk. Yeah. So it makes makes some sense. I'm surprised that the value framework isn't number one. I feel like cost and, like, risk mitigation all comes down to, like, do we have the evidence? Do we have the justification to pay for this? So I'm actually shocked that that's not like beating everything else. And they are kind of interrelated, right? right Taking on the risk means, you know, ha- has to do with the cost. And risk is an interesting one because we use this word often in healthcare, right? We use it in, in value-based care. And, and risk is risky, right? Risk requires taking on risk. But that is not something that executives want to do. That is not something that companies want to do, especially when, to your point, there is a lot of money on the line. So how do you deal with this? How do you deal with balancing taking on the right amount of risk, knowing that, to your hep C story, the, the, the cost can be catastrophic? One of the answers to that is the, the question earlier, you know, to Fanta's point about value frameworks. What value frameworks do is they help you understand kind of the, the, the 360 of that issue. And so what are the benefits? What are the downsides? What is the risk to that? And tries to, if you're, if you're talking, talking about value frameworks that, that pull in economics, it puts a, a, a number around that. and gives you kind of a, a benchmark or, you know, kind of a frame of reference to kind of pin your risk to. Like, I'm will, willing to go up to this point for, for, for you know, for, for so much risk. My point is, is understanding the thing, yep. whatever the thing is, whether it's gene therapy or a diagnostic or, or what have you, 
to understand what are the benefits, what are the downsides, and what are the financial, what's it going to cost you and what's the financial risk associated with it. So I think understanding it, it would be the first step towards figuring it out. I see value, the value framework and risk mitigation really going hand in hand. Risk mitigation is becoming more important because before we used to think more around catastrophic illness and, for example, long ICU stays. But now given curative therapies that cost over a million dollars a year, and we think about the time horizon payers are having to think through for different populations around different mixes, it becomes a very complicated question, particularly when you can't see the future. And like Hep C is a great example because no one knew what that meant. And we don't know that right now with a lot of gene therapies. We don't really know what that's like on CAR-T. And so both those areas, I think, need to have answers. But I do think there are opportunities where if we can put value frameworks around different areas, whether it's different types of next-generation therapeutics or other types of diseases, then we can start to actually quantify and build models and then determine whether those models are accurate and and support them within also new, for example, reinsurance models. And and there are places that have done this for a long time. Like Germany has a very robust insurance model for secondary insurance because they see different types of risk pools amongst different populations. And so we could think of ways where we do that, but it means we have to have a value framework. And it also means that payers have to rethink their business models because they have to have a level of data that they didn't normally have. And claims data is completely insufficient to get you to the level of insight that you need to have to build the value framework and then evaluate risk. How do they get that data? They have to partner with providers. Mm. And this is one of the big catch-22s because no one wants to go first, and it means they have to trust each other when historically they want to instead just caution. Yeah, going off of that point, I was going to say a potential solution for risk mitigation has been outcomes-based contracting because there's just a lot more very like tedious outcomes data that they need to collect to make sure that the outcomes-based contract is actually being met. So that means like a higher bar of evidence and that really goes into like the value framework as well. So really making sure that everyone is working together so that there's shared benefit, the patients can also benefit, but that no one really takes on the bear of the risk. And and I think just reinforcing that so we have actually done a number of value-based and outcomes-based agreements, both on the Medicaid side as well as on the commercial side. And so to me, it's exciting because we have the data, so we're very confident in doing that. But we also run into some organizations who say they want to do it, but they themselves don't have sufficient data. And so then they get up to that point where they have to make a decision, and then they step back and they say, gee, we don't even know how we would adjudicate this in six months or 12 months. So you know what? Let's just go back to the traditional fee-for-service Now, I I said that we're talking about purchasers, but we've mostly been having our conversation about health plans. Let's actually break this out into different purchasers because the risk doesn't have to fall on any one entity here. I don't know that there is a perfect answer here. Frankly, I don't know if there is an answer at all. But how should we think about allocating risk across purchasers, across employers, across even consumers? There could be opportunities for third parties to create things like risk pools, And there are some companies that are doing that, especially for these high-cost therapies, where it's kind of like a reinsurance type of thing. So that's that's one way to do it. It hasn't gotten a lot of traction Mm -hmm. from what I hear, and and it doesn't really solve the problem of cost. 
it just kind of spreads it out. So that's one way to do it, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. And I don't see how, how you could do it without some kind of government intervention. The challenge is, again, the old way of doing things was kind of brute force utilization management, right? So we're going to have pharmacy, we're going to have medical, we're going to have consumer, as particularly around like what amount of premium. And so very few organizations had that perspective where they were looking at that total cost of care mm-hmm. because it was more brute force utilization management. But if we are going to think about these things, particularly around adopting next generation, then we have to be looking at that total cost because the approach can't just be for our PBM. Yeah. Well, what other product then do I no longer have to pay for if I adopt this one? That's not really the right answer, but that's their view because that's all they're looking at. We need to be able to looking at also, well, did we save on ER or inpatient or other types of services? But if you're not looking at the total cost of care perspective, then you're never going to see it. And that could be so, there, you know, the way that the models are currently, you know, growing towards kind of the, the vertical integration, there's probably more incentive to take a holistic approach to it. So it's not just is the drug covered under the medical or the pharmacy, because, you know, it's an, you know, the benefit is to the, the mother organization, shall we say. So maybe the way that some of the models are growing up could, could absorb that approach. And maybe we're, we'll kind of, you know, break out of that siloed approach and take a more holistic approach to, to it. I, right. I hope I, you do. I, ag- I agree. I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. <laughs> I, think that, I think that the integration part gives me reason for optimism. But the pessimism is that means you're going to ask organizations to completely rethink how they work. Oh, yeah. And it makes me wonder, are these organizations that are just trying to rapidly integrate really going to have the cognitive ability to say, and now we're going to have some group that's going to look across all these and actually make intelligent decisions? It's funny, like the bigger you get, the more likely you are to just, you know, to just retreat into your silo. You know, we got got to break down silos, got to break down silos. And the first thing we do is we retreat to our own silo. So, yeah, it's it's hard. I want to switch to focusing on our next stakeholder, which is providers. Now, here we've got four options for you because, of course, there's, there's no shortage of challenges for providers today. Go ahead and go back to your phones. We're going to repeat this poll to pick the biggest challenge facing providers? Is it strategic prioritization? Meaning, why should we focus on this at all? There's a laundry list of things that providers can be doing. Why should we be focusing on next-gen products? Is it making the business case for an individual product? Vanta talked about a huge range of next-generation products. How do you even know which one to pick, let alone making the business case for it? Is it education and training? keeping clinicians and staff even aware that this is happening, let alone actually trained to be able to use it in their daily practice? Or is it workflow integration and how we seamlessly embed these new products into workflow? Let's go ahead and see the results. Numbers are moving around a little bit. Okay. I think we've got two clear winners here, strategic prioritization and workflow integration. Panelists, are you surprised? Or does this make sense? Makes sense to me. It does make some sense. You know, yeah. like, you know, there's so much you have to figure out. Like, so we're talking about the future, right? Right. And everybody's, you know, at this point, probably has your 2023 strategy in place. And then you may be thinking, oh, did I, did I, did I include these other things that are coming? And maybe I need to rethink that. How do I shuffle to account for it? So it does make, it does make some sense. 
the results are still coming in, and it oh, looks like the numbers have changed a little bit. Strategic prioritization is still by far the biggest challenge, but it looks like making the business case for individual products and workflow are, are tied neck and neck. It's interesting because I feel like making the business case would, should have the workflow integration because workflow integration basically is saying that all of these organizations have already been in the, in the process of adoption, but that's not what we're actually hearing. We're hearing that a lot of businesses really don't have the means to adopt a lot of these products because they're so costly. Mm. So it's interesting. So when I look at this, I think of maybe the difference of how provider organizations innovate. And one of the aspects of different organizations is whether is it a top-down or is it a bottom-up or do you have both? So top-down organizations are going to take the more strategic prioritization and they're going to look at business lines and services that are going to be more revenue-generating or going to be more ability to increase their pricing power. And so you can think of an oncology, for example, places building out centers of excellence. I need the next CAR-T. I need to be the top bone marrow transplant. I'm going to put out those data points. You think of Cleveland Clinic trying to become a destination for cardiovascular care. And so you can see there that strategic prioritization is going to take a top view. But on the other hand, if you have organizations that can foster or are willing to foster more at-the-bedside type innovation, then you have the importance of the business case because they may be, for example, in a service line or disease area that doesn't make money. And I think this is a huge challenge, Fonte, you mentioned earlier, like mental health. Look at psychiatry departments. These places just bleed money. And so you don't see the innovation, you don't see the new product adoption because there's no revenue generation potential. But if you have a place that might foster it, then you can bring forward those business cases. Do you allow organizations to have access to different resources, even if it's just on the IT side, because you might say, hey, I want to do this, but I need to do some workflow. I hope that our audience is interested or at least bought into the idea that next generation products are something that they should prepare for. That's why you're, you're here, hopefully. But that's not to say that your leadership teams are necessarily bought in themselves. So when it comes to being able to prioritize doing this at all, this strategic prioritization, what advice do you have for our listeners to take back to their leadership teams to get them to actually focus on some of these next generation products? Because the pipeline is full. I think we could probably learn a little bit from how drugs typically launch in that drugs don't go from like zero, they don't typically go from zero to 100% uptake. It's usually pretty slow in the first year as the word gets out, as clinicians get comfortable with it, as the system understands it and can absorb it. So what's different about 2023 is we have so many coming. So I think 2023 is probably going to be a year where we have to learn how to, it, it, it could be a learning year where, yes, these things are coming and in some degree they're already here. So if you're worried about gene therapy, look at what do we already have. We've got Zolgensma. We've got Luxterna. We've got the, the new one for beta thalassemia. So there are some that you can look at as a test case and, and see, well, how can we absorb that? Can we do that? Can we duplicate that? Can we, can we scale it? Do we, you know, we know that hemophilia is coming. So do we have a hemophilia business? Do we have a hemophilia treatment center? That would be the, the kind of the, where I would kind of encourage people to look at those areas where that these things are going to hit and start thinking around that and maybe use 2023 as a way to kind of get familiar with that 
so that as they as these things launch, you won't be too far behind. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say something along the lines of just like focusing on the learning. So like looking at the pipeline data, really embedding yourself into, again, with like education and training, really looking how we can actually use these things in practice. Share this podcast episode as yeah. to be a start to education. It also has a level of just like cultural sensitivity and competence. So even if we have all of these products that are in the market, are we actually prepared to apply them and actually mm. use them in a safe and effective way? Will patients have access to this? What patients are we prioritizing for these products, et cetera? So really putting our heads down to really see what's coming in the market and which uh, patients will benefit from them the most. I would say three things. So one is not can we afford to, but can we afford not to? Because it's a competitive place out there for provider organizations. Two is, is it going to change how we are able to both acquire and keep patients? Because the whole front door for healthcare is changing rapidly. And patients have a lot more choice. And so if we don't adapt and adopt, we may actually lose those patients. And we may see all of a sudden what we thought was a very healthy legacy evaporate in front of us. And then three is then we can't keep doing things the same way. And this gets to workflow. The provider shortages are not going to get better. I think anyone who thinks, oh, we'll eventually get back up to prior staffing and we'll have the same capacity mm-hmm. is just not recognizing fundamental shifts in the workflow force. So we have to be thinking then about not just how do we keep doing what is going to be more and more, but how do we do it differently and how do we do it smarter? Let's talk about making the business case for individual products. So if, if we can't afford not to do this, which I do believe and I hope you believe as well, There's a difference between then getting down into what specific thing should I do next at my organization, especially since there's such a laundry list of possibilities. And especially since, let's be honest, I think a lot of providers either in the room or listening have been burned by that pitch deck that said, this is going to solve all of your problems. This device, this new product, this new technology, and then what happens? So what advice do you have for folks that are looking at maybe different pitch decks looking at different products that they could be using and trying to prioritize which one should they start with? I would say weighing just the benefit for individual patients versus populations, so who are we serving, and really weighing between like the benefits and the cost. Does it make sense for your organization? Where is this fitting best in their care cascades? And really just seeing what is that value proposition? Again, going back to the value framework, really looking at the different segments of that, working in collaboration with other stakeholders, and making sure that it makes sense for your organization to move forward. You bring up the, the, the pitch deck, because I think that's probably a good, a, a good practical one, because I'm sure everybody has probably seen those or had somebody come into your office and give them to you. You can probably have like a couple different reactions to those, some very negative and some positive. I see a lot of them in my role. So there are some things that I think are pretty good there. One is especially around some of these rare diseases, the company typically knows the disease better than most people. And so you can probably understand a little bit about the disease state, the underpinnings of the biology, the genetics. That's probably pretty helpful. The other thing is the the actual target patient population. Every single pitch deck is going to say the same thing. They're going to say, this is the universe. This is how many people are with the disease. And with the disease, this is how many people are diagnosed this is how many people seek treatment. And it gets down to a really small number where you say, oh, it's really small, so it's not going to really hit your bottom line. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's kind of what it is. But it can give you a sense, and, and you, you can see it with an with a educated eye because you're smart people. And for those who create these pitch decks who might be listening, 
recognize that the people re reading them are smart people, mm -hmm. and so they will clearly see through the you know marketing spin. But you can look and, and pretty clearly see, okay, this is kind of the universe of of who could could benefit. Yes, a small number of people are treated today, but really the the, the market that they'll be going after is a little bigger than that, and so it can give you some quantitative numbers around that that could be helpful. And now, of course, you have to adapt that to your own population and understand how does that match up with whom you have and whom you're serving. So understanding your own book of business is, is really important in that regard. And then, of course, the data around there, is they have to be truthful about some of the things that are there. But the thing I think you would probably benefit greatly from is for some of these disease states, the scale that they use might be unique to that disease state. And so that's an opportunity where you can probably learn a little bit from the company. Like, what, why did you pick that scale? Probably because the FDA made them pick that. Not because it's used in clinical practice, but from a regulatory perspective, they have to use that particular scale to get through the FDA. But you can understand a little bit about it, and that's an opportunity to press them on that, to understand, well, what does the data actually mean? So by understanding that scale, you can understand what the data says and what it doesn't say. So those pitch decks, they can be helpful if you can kind of cut through some of the marketing spin that inevitably is just part of the process. The Dobbs versus Jackson Supreme Court decision has left patients and providers with a confusing patchwork of new state laws that are upending established practices for reproductive care. With the legality of specific procedures, drugs, and even traveling for care being called into question, Radio Advisory is here to help you understand the latest developments and what they mean for healthcare. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we've been talking thus far about individual stakeholders, but I want to move on to talking about the ecosystem together. If I'm honest, when we hear challenges crop up from real people in the healthcare industry, we tend to start to notice that people are pointing fingers at one another, right? It's easier to think about somebody else's problem that they have than actually trying to solve my own, which is the theme of our next game. If anybody has seen Jimmy Kimmel's late night show, he has a segment that's called Mean Tweets. It's literally where celebrities read off mean tweets about themselves. This is a game that for legal purposes is merely inspired by that, where <laughs> we have actually developed some faux tweets, but they represent very real feelings and very real fears that healthcare leaders have when it comes to adopting these next generation products. So I'm actually going to invite my panelists to read off some of the tweets that we have developed. I want to do this, but I know my leadership is going to say no. <sighs> <laughs> and let's do one more from you. I mean, this all sounds good, but can someone else go first? <laughs> Yuri, do you want to go next? I'm already battling COVID and disruption. And you want me to do more work? Gotta do the eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might help patient outcomes, but we don't have the money, resources, or change management. <laughs> All right, Bill. All of this innovation sounds cool, but I'm not even able to access what's already in the market. Why should I be excited? You don't get an emoji for this one, sorry. And the last one. 
I want to pay for these things, but let's be honest. The savings horizon is way too far in the future to make this worth it. All right, audience, be honest with me. Look at these tweets. Think about what you just heard. And actually clap. I want you to clap if you have felt any of these sentiments in the last year. It can be about next generation products. It can be about anything in healthcare. Go ahead and clap if you felt this way. Okay, you're clapping for a while. <laughs> All right, who's felt this way in the last in the last hour? Who's felt this way in this session? Be honest. What do you take of the tone of these tweets? What do you take of the reaction of our audience? That these are very real feelings that folks have. Yeah. I personally resonate with like the consumer one. So as great as all of these products sound, if I'm not able to actually access it, and if it's actually not able to be marketed to patients who will benefit from it, then like what's the point of all of this? Like what's the point of the, this conversation? What's the point of the value framework? If there's not like that health equity lens embedded into it, all of this is kind of pointless. What do you take of the sentiment in the market that this is so hard, that people are feeling tired and that they can't do it and, you know, somebody else should go first? Yeah, it's very real. What I'm hearing is like, you got to be kidding me. Come on. You know, I can't do this or for whatever reason. That's exactly what you were getting at, right? With our margins this yeah. slim, you want me to do what? Yeah. It's very real, you know, and I think that we, the collective we, need to recognize that. So as a payer, I work for OptumRx. You know, we need to be conscious of what's going on in the, the larger society. If I'm a developer, I need to be conscious of, of the impact and recognize that, yeah, I'm coming in with this innovation, yeah. but this person probably has already heard like five others this week. Yeah. There's a cumulative effect of that on what we can just humanly absorb. Yeah, there's context that, that the other side tends to be missing right. because we do live in our silos. We do live in our insular part right. of the system. Right. And so we need to understand the challenges that the purchasers are facing, challenges that the providers are facing. Right. How does this come up in your own work? And how do you address some of these barriers when, when you hear real real feelings like this? Yeah, I'll both say, I mean, I think this is an example of healthcare-wide burnout. Yeah, There's just burnout across groups. Everyone's been having to try and figure out answers to really challenging questions and it just you don't see the end horizon and so i think to both your and bill's discussion just moments ago you do have to understand that context and you have to put yourself not only in their seat but you have to actually get to a point of dialogue where you can understand what are the barriers they face within their organization and help them overcome and i think a key area particularly in next gen diagnostics and therapeutics is understanding what the decision-making process is in those organizations, what the consequences are to people who take risk in those organizations, and then how do you help them maybe even think about that structure, right? You have many organizations out there that are like, let's face it, if you don't mess up for two years, you're going to get your next promotion, Yeah. right? So why would you stick your neck out in an organization like that? Just play it safe. And so you can then help those organizations say, well, maybe there's a decision-making structure where no one individual has to stick their their neck out. We can help everyone do it together. And then the organization can move forward. Also, do you have an organization that says, we're going to reward experimentation? Yes. We're going to reward people who run a number of experiments, and we're going to recognize some of them are going to fail, and some of them are going to be okay, and then some are going to be a success. And then we need to show the rest of the organization that we're going to actually incentivize and reward those people who do take 
those risks and run those experiments. But you really have to like understand what are the different metrics. And it's fascinating because you see organizations have very different success criteria. Yeah. So you can't just say, oh, this worked for Optum. Now this is going to work for another one. You have to learn from them, which means you have to be a good listener. That's such a good point, being a good listener, to be able to understand the context of the other person that you're talking to, the other organization, the other stakeholder. How do you actually want them to work together practically so that we can actually embrace some of these next generation products? For our experience is, one, getting them to share that information. So you have to... Who's them in this case? Oh, sorry. So let's say a payer. Okay. Let's say a payer. You have to help them share with you, for example, what are the criteria and how they may be struggling, for example, to review a new product class. And I can be very specific here. Like prescription digital therapeutics are completely new. Right. And every payer is now starting to think about or somewhere in that adoption curve. We have seen, for example, state Medicaid's adopt. We're seeing commercial insurance adopt, pharmacy benefit adopt. But there's many that are in different stages of this process, and they have very basic questions. Does this go through PNT? Is this on medical? Is this on pharmacy? Who reviews cybersecurity? And so you need to listen to those and then help understand and help them come up with solutions within their, their organization, and then also help them see the value and think through some of the consequences like, well, how are we going to manage overutilization? How are we going to think about if we want to put in a value-based agreement, what are the data there? So putting yourself in their shoes and and helping them. The other thing that's really important is healthcare is not a tell-me field. It's a show-me field. Mm -hmm. And so bringing case studies of other organizations that have had success, that will also be very important because now you start to tap into rather the fear of being first, it's the fear of missing it. Yeah. Fanta, Bill, what, what kinds of things do you want the industry to work together on as we adapt to these next-gen products? I think first and foremost is coming together early and often. So really like honing mm-hmm. in on that like collaboration and partnership, working towards that shared definition of value so that things are mutually beneficial so we don't have things like who goes first because everyone wants to go first. We all want to benefit from this product. So I would probably say that, like really honing in on what partnership looks like and how we can work together to really define value together. I want to really like plus 10 that. So (laughs) this is really important, particularly for providers and payers. I'm going to give everyone an example. I will not mention any of the organizations, but there was a payer organization who wanted to introduce a new approach and they went and met with a provider that they actually thought was a pretty high-quality provider and said, we'd like to talk to you about a pilot. And the first thing out of the pilot delivery organization or provider organization's leadership was, no, we'd first like to talk to you about the 80% of our claims that you rejected last year. There was no partnership that was going to happen there because they did not have a partnership at all, let alone one built on trust. Mm. So trying to help those organizations instead figure out how are we going to solve this mutual problem together mm-hmm. is critical, but it's really hard. Right. Yeah, I think I'll pick up on that, but I want to take a little bit of a different tact in that there's an element, like when I hear how can we partner together, I am very skeptical when I hear that mm. because usually I'm in the position of somebody coming to me and saying, how can we partner with you? Which really means how can we get on formulary? How can I give you $2 and get five back. In our business, there is a natural tension and distrust between the two sides. And so 
I think it's great to have early conversation and often, but I'm usually the one having those conversations and I have multiple every week. Yeah. Whereas every company, you know, has like an army of people. So the conversation we're having here is recognizing what the other side is dealing with mm-hmm. and helping to kind of understand that. So that's why that's why I think things like this are really helpful because it helps the helps people understand the other side. Yeah. Drugs don't work, people don't take them. Connected to that is the, the providers who have to deal with it and the systems yeah. that have to absorb it. You know, so if we're insensitive to that and we're not working where we can as technology grows and as we become smarter about how to work to eliminate the minutia to make people's jobs yep. better and easier so they can absorb these things, we got to do that. Like we, we're missing the mission if we're not doing that. And sometimes it's in small things. Like we've got a PA that's got five steps. Why do we have five steps? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe we can get rid of two of those. And these are the conversations we do have with our P&T committee who reviews, reviews those, who are practicing clinicians. So that's where sometimes the tension between the employer, the payer, the sponsor, they want to kind of control costs, and, that, and then the tension with the, the clinician kind of comes to bear, and we try to figure out how can we do it better and how can we com- compromise. It's kind of a system-wide thing. I do want to ask one more question of our expert panelists. At Advisory Board, we want to change the way that health leaders see, think, and act. My question for you is when it comes to next generation products, what's the most important thing about how you want folks to see this problem and think about the solution? I think I'd like people to see this from the lens of this is where we're going. So if I step backwards, several years ago, the, the rage was personalized medicine, personalized medicine. You know, we just uncoded the human genome, and now we can do genome sequencing for $1,000 instead of a billion, and that's going to change things, and we'll be able to know everybody's genetic makeup, and then it spawned 23andMe, and then Ancestry.com, so you can connect that on a personal basis, and then have some fun with that. You know, we had this thing called personalized medicine. That was kind of the idea. But now it's just medicine. Yeah. It's just medicine. Drugs are for cancer, you know, are now for cancer that has a specific biomarker. We've shifted in some ways to where does the cancer appear? What organ is it in? What tissue does it come from to does it have this biomarker? And some drugs are being developed. It doesn't matter whether it's in the lung, the brain, the wherever. It, if it's got that biomarker, you can use that drug. So eventually, what we're, what we're learning now with these second generation, next generation technologies will eventually bleed over into the therapies of today. Let me give you one more example that's a little more current. CAR-T therapy. That became, was very revolutionary, right? Way back when, when I first started practicing as a pharmacist, was cytotoxic chemotherapy. Kill the cancer before you kill the patient. But then you kind of evolved, and we got to the point where we've got this CAR-T therapy. We're harnessing the, the, the body's T-cells. Eventually, we'll have off-the-shelf types of things that'll make it easier to deliver that. Or there's a drug approved just the other day, teclistamab, which is a bispecific. It kind of uses the same idea where it, it uses a monoclonal antibody to grab the T-cell and grab the tumor and kind of put them together so the, wow. the T-cell can do its thing. It's very toxic, but that's another step in that direction. And so this is how medicine, this is kind of how it, it goes. Eventually what's far-reaching today just becomes how we do things. So it's a worthwhile investment, I guess is how I'm thinking it. Gary, what's your most important takeaway? This may be a slightly different take. I will admit I'm a technophile, so it would be 
awesome if all these really cool technologies were adopted. But the challenge is we can't in healthcare. We can't adopt every next thing. And so we have to decide which things we're going to adopt and which things we're not, or which things we're going to adopt today and which things we might reconsider in the future. And so for me, it comes down, regardless of the type of technology, less about kind of what the actual technology is and more about what it does. So how does it improve access? How does it improve outcomes? And what is its value? And I think if we keep that framework and then we actually use data to evaluate it, that is a very objective and quantifiable way that can help organizations to actually then scale and systematize how they decide to adopt things. Because there's many things that seem inevitable where things may change or other things may overcome. So we need to have those types of frameworks to help us. Right. I'm sort of piggybacking off of Bill's point, actually. I'm so sorry to contradict you. Um, (laughs) Personally, I feel like next generation therapeutics, I think I opened with this as well. I feel like it's a this generation problem. It's Mm. the future is now, as we've already seen. Bill, you've mentioned before, the market is booming. The speed at which market entry is happening right now is very crazy. So organizations need to be preparing for it. It's not enough to just be aware of them. And then secondly, I would just hone in on the access uh, part where although we're seeing the market booming, patients need to be able to access these products. So we should be thinking about all of these things in a very patient-centric way. Well, let's give a big round of applause for my expert panelists who are here. Thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Planning and recording this episode was honestly so much fun. It was great to be there in person with our experts and with our audience to really understand and discuss one of the major challenges in healthcare. If you're interested in us doing more episodes like this, more live events, make sure you leave us a rating and a review. I want to hear if we should do this again. And please remember, as always... Advisory Board is here to help. If you like Radio Advisory, please share this episode with your network and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find this episode and find our podcast. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Katie Anderson and Kristen Myers. This episode was edited by Dan Tyag, with technical support by Chris Phelps and Joe Shrum. Additional support was provided by Fanta Sharif and Solomon Banjo. Thanks for listening. Why would I ever say no to more applause? You didn't even have to work for that. You didn't have to pop that. I know. I didn't have to tell anybody to applaud for me.